I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Talk and Golf History, the podcast that brings the past into the present, holds it up to the light, squeezes all the interesting and entertaining stuff out of it, and then before putting it back together, tries to work out what it might all mean for the future. My name's Rod Murray. Good to be with you as we celebrate a new US Open champion in Gary Woodland after what was a tournament that seemed to hit all the right notes with most at Pebble Beach last week. If you haven't already, check out episode 12 of the pod where Connor runs us through some of the early history of the US Open and how it actually got off to a false start. Enough of that for the moment, however, as we're changing gears today, turning our attention from a tournament that captures the imagination to a player who does the same. We're going to be chatting the incredible Canadian Mo Norman this week when we're joined in just a moment by Tim O'Connor, author of The Feeling of Greatness, The Mo Norman Story, a book I read myself some 20 or more years ago and still to this day. It has an impact. However, before we come to Tim, let me bring in my co-host and allow him to get some of the homework out of the way. Time to say a big hello to Connor Lewis. Connor, should be a great show today, but before we talk all things Mo Norman, give the listeners a quick thumbnail sketch of how they can get in touch and why they might want to. Hello, everyone out in podcast land. This is Connor Lewis. You can reach us at on Twitter. You can reach Rod at, at Rod underscore Maury. That's where all the complaints go. If you want to praise the program, it's at S Historians. Uh, we can also reach me, us out to out to us via the Facebook page, the Society of Golf Historians, or email me directly at the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com. Right. So let me say, if you've got something to say, something to get off your chest, feel free to get in touch with Connor or myself or with ideas for the show. And as you know, we take some listener questions from time to time. Feel free to send those through as well. And always, Connor, when you've got a question, what do the listeners have to do when they get in touch with us on Twitter to make sure their question gets read out? No one follows this. No, if they, they don't. If they ever do, mm-hmm. it's hashtag TG history. That's right. And we will institute a policy soon that if you don't have hashtag TG history, we won't read your question out because it makes it hard for us to find them. So make sure you use hashtag, T- hashtag TG history. Enough about that. I'm really looking forward to today, Connor. I know that you, like me, love the stories of Mo Norman and we're going to get a whole hatful of them today when we chat to Tim. So that should be something to really look forward to. Oh, absolutely. I, I, Mo Norman is one of my favorite stories. And as we know, as I like to say, history is all about the stories. Yep, indeed. It's the Tom- man, the legend, the myth, <laughs> Mo Norman. <laughs> the genius that was. Time to meet the man of the hour, Tim O'Connor. Tim doesn't realize this, but it was his book, which I believe was released in 1995, was the first place I ever heard anything about the legendary Mo Norman, in the days before the internet, books were among the best ways to learn things about the game and its history, and that was certainly the case with the feeling of greatness. With a new film in the works aimed at celebrating the lifetimes and genius of Mo Norman, today seemed like an ideal time to tick off a personal bucket list item and chat to Tim about Mo, the book, the movie, and everything else related to one of the game's most important historical figures. Tim O'Connor, welcome. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Oh, yeah. It's it's great to 
talk with both of you fine gentlemen and talk about Mo. It's always fun to talk about Mo. He's one of the, the legends of the game. Uh, not that well known in some circles, but among those who are familiar with Mo, uh, they love to tell the stories. There's thousands of Mo stories, and heck, we might even tell a few. Today, right? <laughs> I reckon we will get to a few of them today. Let's back up just a little bit, Tim. 1995, is that right? That's when you the book was first published? Yes, when it was first published, 1995, and I was really, it was my first book, and I was really tickled by the response. Uh, a lot of people were very pleased that a book was finally done on Mo to maybe attract a little bit more attention to Mo. I mean, he was, a, you might say, a minor celebrity in the golf world. They never made it big on the PGA Tour, but certainly a, a legend, an, an icon, um, one of the great kind of feel-good stories. There's also a bittersweet part to Mo, and and my one of my great uh, objectives in writing the book was to really kind of set the record straight. There's a lot of myths and embellishments about Mo, and so I had a policy that all the stories would be first person, so that we could kind of set the set the story straight on Mo. And so the book, I was very pleased. It was book. It was it was well received by most peers because most friends were very protective of Mo and. You know, because Mo had been hurt a lot in his life. So I was pleased that it, it mostly got a really good reception in it. And it did well among fans of, of you know, kind of a, a, a kind of a, an eccentric person in golf. Didn't actually meet the, the mold of your, of your marquee tour star or anything like that. But Mo certainly had an, an amazing story. And I just wanted to stay out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of tell it. Just to back up a little bit more, Tim, so how did you come to hear about Mo? What was what was the process? What went into the, the steps that went into the decision that fi- finally had you saying, I've got to write a book about this guy? Well, if you want to start stepping back, we can certainly do that. So I grew up in London, Ontario, in southern southern Ontario. And my dad was a very avid golfer, a very good player. And it was interesting that in the in the fifties, people would go. They would actually go and watch amateur golf events. <laughs> I know it may sound kind of weird in today's world. When Sounds wonderful, Tim. Events. Goodness, yeah, I, wouldn't the world be a better place if we still did some of that? Absolutely. And so my father saw Mo play, and he heard the stories, and at his club, they tell the stories. There's always so many stories about Mo because he was a different cat, and a lot of people didn't really understand him. And so my dad would tell me these stories, and, and you know, but this guy, you know, sure, not all of them were absolutely true. Um, that Mo, you know, lived out of his car, that he slept in bunkers and all this amazing stuff. And so when I was a kid and I was an avid player myself, you know, I kind of had this image that Mo was kind of like this um, troll that lived under a bridge. <laughs> you know, he had this old leather golf bag, you know, and this all these clubs, all these old leather and stuff. And. And so that's when I got connected to Mo. And then, you know, I typical thing, I got into music and university and all this stuff and kind of left golf. And then I became a journalist. And um, I was a, a music critic for a while. It was a pretty cool gig. And then I just got dragged back into golf. And I just became obsessed. And I ran into um, a golf professional in Ontario named Mark Evershed. And Shed is a real character in his own right. And he started to talk about Mo and how some of his 
instruction connected to Mo's way of swinging the golf club. And it, and I just really started to get infatuated by this character and all the amazing stories and, and just learning to know more. So I kind of became known as the Mo Maven. And I started yeah. to write articles and columns, and I did a radio documentary for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So I became kind of the Mo guy. And I got approached by a publisher and said, would you like to do a book? And, well, of course. And so uh, that's the story how I got into Mo. And did you, at what point, I assume at some point you met Mo and came to know him. At what point was that? Was it prior to you becoming the journalist and wanted to do all that? Or was it after that that you sort of pursued him and, and met up with him? Well, I was talking to an editor. So I was a freelance writer in the early 90s. and. I wrote for a financial publication. One of my publications was a financial publication. And the editor said, hey, Tim, what's going on? What do you, what's interests you these days? I said, wow, oh, I just kind of been reignited in my interest in this cat, Mo Norman. And he goes, who's Mo Norman? <laughs> so right. I proceeded to talk for about five minutes. He goes, oh, my God, we got to put him on the cover of our April edition. Mm-hmm. You know, when it coincides with the Masters. Well, that was great, except I only had one problem. I'd never met Mo Norman. So so Mark, the aforementioned Mark Evershed, I contacted him, and he arranged for me to have a game with Mo and meet with him down in uh, Cape, near Cape Canaveral, Florida, at Royal Oak Golf Club where Mo used to hang out. So I flew down there, and uh, I met Mo, and it was unlike any interview I'd ever done uh, within – 30 seconds of meeting him. He tells me he's the best ball striker who ever lived. And he and Ben Hogan lived in a, in a world that no one else traversed in terms of hitting the ball pure and straight at their target every single time. And Tim, Tim, this this is before you even saw him hit a ball, right? This is just straight out the gate. Correct. I'd never seen. And what, what are you thinking when you hear that? Are you thinking, you know, myth? Are you thinking, yeah, I buy that. Or, are you just no. a wait and see mode? I'm in wait and see mode. I mean, I yeah. had interviewed, I had interviewed, uh, you know, the Prime Minister of Canada. I had been <laughs> talking to rock stars, um, sports celebrities, and no one had had talked to me with the the absolute confidence, conviction that Mo did that he was the best. And it was so interesting. Uh, like I was taken aback. I didn't know what to think. There was no feigned uh, humbleness. There was no, uh, and it wasn't over the top. It was just data. Just fact. He, yeah, absolutely. That He was the yeah. best ball striker who ever lived. Uh, I'd never met anybody like this. And I'd been, you know, I interviewed David Bowie for gosh sakes. And Yeah. I mean, like you're that. saying this. I have goosebumps just thinking about it, like just in anticipation of where this goes. So continue. I'm, 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 I'm all in. Yeah. So, so we chat for about 10 minutes and I'm kind of a bit overwhelmed. And so I'm going to kind of save up stuff. And so we arranged to meet, uh, at the first tee, Mark Evershed and I and Mo and, um, Mo's a couple of minutes late. We don't know if he's going to show up. Maybe, you know, didn't want, he, does, he didn't like media very much. Um, and, but anyways, he finally shows up. And it was kind of like he put his golf bag down and extracted the driver all in the same motion and put the ball on a peg, one look at the target, and pow, it was gone. And he hit it at this tree 
that was right beside a, a big pond. And I thought, the best ball strike I've ever lived just hit it in the pond. That's not so great. <laughs> and before I was even, I could even kind of blink, pow, I hit another one. Same tree, but same branch. And like, oh my gosh, what the hell? So I, I kind of ambled. I, I try to keep up with Mo best I can. He just he's just walking a mile a minute down there, and I get down there, and then like, oh my god, I believe I get it. He has hit both golf balls within about three feet of each other, and he's left himself with the shortest possible approach. He cut the dog leg and he put it immediately on the corner of this pond so he would be left with the shortest possible shot. So he hits a wedge, hits one to like six feet, another one to eight feet, and it was like, I believe. He's playing the angles. We're playing golf and he's playing golf, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Was he a shallow? The whole round was sorry. like that? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the whole round was like that. Um, he just knocked down his targets all the time and uh, – so I think we came to about the seventh hole or so, and it's about a 230, 225 par three. And he takes out like a four wood, you know, an old persimmon four wood. And he just, he hits this laser and it just locks onto the flag and it lances into the green about two inches from the cup. And he goes, ooh, almost an unplayable lie in the green, almost an unplayable lie in the green. <laughs> And then as he walks, he, he never put it out. He just walks, he scoops the ball up. He says, ooh, Fred Couples can't hit it this good, but he gets 200,000. Mo gets nothing. And I kind of went, aw. Yeah. And, and the, right? joy, the joy of the moment just kind of went out of it because that was Mo's reality, is that he had lived hand to mouth most of his life. And despite having this otherworldly skill, he was never really able to take advantage of it. And yeah. so that was kind of the bittersweet reality of Mo is this, uh, this in incredible ability, um, you know, quite the life he overcame in the classic resilience underdog story. But, you know, he never knew how much money he was going to have. And he, he struggled, uh, to, you know, to beat himself at times. Yeah. He, he really lived in the wrong time, didn't he? I mean, even if you were just a, a trick shot artist today, you can make, you know, six figures to a million dollars. Yeah, you well know, said. Just, yeah, it's but unbelievable. Also, let me ask you, let me ask you sure. this. When you were hitting, when you saw these shots, I, I've, I've never seen Mo hit, and other than watching YouTube, unfortunately, and I, and I, I hurt myself for that. But I, huh. I hear that he had the ability to hit dead straight shots. And there's a there's a legendary story, and maybe you know it, uh, of Ben Hogan and, and Mo Norman. I, at least I've heard whether it's wives' tale or not. Of uh, I'll, I'll tell the story, and then you tell me if if you've heard it, or maybe it's just a wives' tale. But there was they were they were on the range, and Hogan was on the far right side, and I think Mo was on the left. And Hogan was always on the right because he didn't like to watch other players hit balls. And someone came up and nudged Hogan, and and someone I apparently asked him, you know, what's the perfect shot? And Hogan said. Well, I hit a fade, but a true perfectly struck shot will be a slight draw. Mm -hmm. And the player says to Hogan, what about the straight shot? And Hogan goes, nobody can hit a straight shot. It's an accident if you hit a straight shot. And he exactly. said, well, come. He goes, take me down to the other side of the range. So he pulls Hogan aside, pulls him all the way down the other side of the range. And there's Mo Norman just hitting straight shot, straight shot, straight shot. And the player looks at Hogan and goes, what do you think of that? 
And he goes, hey, Mo, keep hitting those accidents. And we'll just exactly. walk back to his site. <laughs> yeah. That's I just love, I love that I've story. Heard that, I've heard that story, too. And, yeah. you know, it's that's the beauty of Mo is that there's about a thousand stories and some of them might even some of them even might even be. Yeah, that's right. That's and that's the hard that's what you had to do though, right? Was really get through those stories, dig in as deep as you can to figure out, you know, what was reality and what wasn't. Yeah. Well Mo did hit the ball straight and it was proven. Uh he hit uh so Wally Uline was a huge fan of Mo's and Wally was the chair of a Kushnet, which was the parent company yeah. for Foot Joy and Titleist and and so Wally arranged for Mo to come in to hit on a simulator uh, for Titleist in Toronto. And Wally said that Mo was the only player he'd ever seen create data where he hit a ball with zero side spin. He wow. said that when Mo hit a ball, it was like a Ferris wheel in the air, just end over end over end. And so that's why Mo's balls would go out on a line and they just kind of drop from the sky, the, the perverse proverbial butterfly with sore feet but yeah. yeah so the data was mo hit the ball straight and that's what you saw with your eyes which is straight shot after straight shot unbelievable but he could also mo could also carve this guy with whatever he wanted to do mo would uh, during clinics he would go uh hit the ball 10 feet hit the ball 20 feet i'm the only golfer plays by heights and he'd do it yeah and and one of the best stories is told by uh, paul azinger um I interviewed Paul at the uh, the Ryder Cup at uh, Oak Hill in Rochester, and Zinger loved to talk about Mo, and he, he talked about how when he was, I think he was a freshman at, um, I think it was Brevard College in Florida, and John Redmond was his coach, and they drove to some driving range, whatever, and it's a hot, hot day, and they get out, and the kids are unloading their bags, and John Redmond goes, hey, guys. There is the best ball striker who ever lived. And Azinger looks at him, and he's just this dumpy kind of old guy, and he's got a, right. a you know, it's 100 degrees out, and he's wearing a turtleneck. And, <laughs> and Zinger goes, yeah, right. He says he went over and he watched, and he says he hit these balls, uh, drivers at the 250-yard sign, and he said that every ball, they'd either hit the sign or it'd go under it or over it, and Mo said it'll hit – I'm going to hit a ball and it's going to bounce one and hit the sign, and then he would do it. Oh! And Zinger was just like amazed. And I could, but, I could just hear Zinger say, "You got to be kidding me!" Yeah, <laughs> you could probably hear that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, Zinger, Faldo, all these guys. You talk to them, uh, and they'll talk about one of the best ball strikers they ever saw, and it was Mo. There's a very famous picture of Mo hitting balls in front of Faldo, Ben Crenshaw, Nick Price, and Fred Couples. And they were just spellbound. And we were t I do a podcast called Swing Thoughts, and yeah. we were talking about it the other day. And my co-host, his name is Howard Glassman, and he was the MC. And he said, so he watched this happen, and he said that Faldo was just in a trance watching Mo, just completely fascinated. That's the respect that Mo had yeah. in the game. So not, not your... A lot of average people didn't know Mo, but for those who knew the game and knew how difficult it was to hit the ball dead square every freaking time, they knew yeah. how good Mo was. Let me ask you this. Um, where does this greatness come from? Well, you know, like Hogan, we know, spent the good part of half of his early days 
digging it out of the dirt, trying to lose the hook. Was he like Hogan? Did he get it out of the dirt? Or did he just understand it like Mozart did a piano? Wow, I like the way you put that. Um, Mo was Mo was really, really smart in terms of um, his ability to figure out angles. He was a math genius. You got, Mo, a lot of people didn't understand Mo, but when they saw the movie The Rain Man, you remember that yeah. with Dustin Hoffman and all yeah. that? They went, that's Mo. Because Mo did have traits. Uh, I don't know whether Mo was on the autism spectrum or not. Sure. Um, my research was that he had suffered a brain injury when he was five. He got oh, um, I don't in know a mi- minor accident with uh, with a car when he was tobogganing. But um, so Mo was very smart at figuring out angles. But I also think that he was one of the most kinesthetically gifted people that that I ever came upon. And but also his whole life was golf. He didn't have a life outside of golf. So. When he was hitting balls, he wasn't worried about, you know, meeting Mary Lou at the diner or catching yeah. up with the guys. He was completely immersed in golf. So so his awareness, everything was just focused on golf. So I have a sense that Mo was a, an extremely mindful golfer, and he didn't think his way through the swing. He felt it. And Mo, yeah. that's a key thing about Mo is that Mo uh, physically, emotionally was a – just had high, he was hypersensitive uh, to to a slight that someone might make to him, but also his ability to feel and so it went so both ways, all right? those, both emotionally all those, and yep. yeah, all those things. And he invested the time between the ages of about seventeen, eighteen, twenty, twenty one. That's when he sort of did his woodshed period, and he would spend you know in golf season in Canada at Rockway Golf Club in Kitchener, Ontario. Kind of like the dawn to dusk thing, hitting balls yeah. you know, until his proverbial hands bled. And so I, I think that's interesting. I never really thought about that, that his sensitivity went far from just being emo- emotional sensitivity, but also having that sensitivity and feel. Um, maybe you Absolutely. could share the story. Share the story. Um, I, I, I'm fairly sure I heard this somewhere where uh, he would think about uh, strength. Like, for instance, left arm versus right arm or left leg versus right leg to basically overcome any physical weakness that he might have that may affect his golf game. Because I, I find that fascinating. Who, th- who does that? Exactly. Well, what Mo would do uh, after marathon sessions at Rockway, he would do things like this. He would pour as much hot water as he could till he could barely handle it. And he'd plunge his arms into it and he'd see which arm would hurt the most. Wow. And he would figure that the arm that hurt the most needed needed to be stronger. As he lay in bed, he'd think like, which which eye does he feel more? Kind of thing. What leg? What feels more tired? That meant he kept his weight there too long. You know, I don't know how. Like I've never heard of any golfer talk like that. I don't know if it's apocryphal no. or not. You know, but Mo spoke about the go- game in ways I never heard anyone speak about it in terms of. The feeling part of it, and it's really interesting to me because I'm a I'm a performance coach with golfers, and I do life coaching and whatnot. And a, a theme that I talk about all the time is that people are mistaken when they think golf's a mental game. Golf, at its heart, is a physical game. It's our minds that get in the way. So, to me, Mo was was the found. I don't know. He was the uh, classic 
golfer who was completely in his body and felt his he experienced his swing as he did it. I don't think he guided it. I don't think he tried to do any kind of he wasn't cognizant of any kind of uh, technical thing. He couldn't explain his swing. He was a he was like an artist. He just felt his way through this thing, and he just so he played, was, right? Yeah, he, he played, just played the piano. Yeah, he played the piano, but he 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 did it in such a way that he completely owned it. I mean, yeah. people estimate that Mo hit somewhere between seven and you know six to eight million golf balls. I mean, there's so many stories Ooh. in his day. But he would hit ball after ball after ball after ball. And what and would be a what would be a normal range session? Like how many balls? If you sit down, more Norman. What? How many balls are we talking about a day to get there? Usually about a five hundred ball minimum. Wow, five hundred balls. I mean, I hit thirty six balls, and I'm like, oh, oh, my back. I can't even imagine well, Mo five hundred balls. Mo had calluses that were so deep on his his hands looked just like strange like an alien and he had he had in his left hand the callus that formed around like the 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 base of your thumb there you know the thumb pad yeah the callus was so sharp he could he could cut you with it and i remember that uh, guy yoko of golf digest said that mo he was interviewing mo and this is in mo in his later years that Mo said, I could cut you with it, and he waved it in front of his face, and Guy was a little bit nervous about this. I mean, it was just that, and Mo would have to cut his calluses with a knife. What? Wow. From that much work on the range, that, that much range time. Unreal. Yeah, but, but Mo, you see, the interesting thing about Mo was that golf was Mo's refuge. See, Mo was, um, Mo felt off the golf course and on the golf course was that was his domain. He was completely at home off the golf course. He was anxious. He felt he didn't fit in. People thought he, he, everyone perceived him as stupid. Uh, he didn't fit in. I mean, he, his clothes didn't match very well. He didn't have any sense of, uh, it, sometimes even of hygiene for gosh sakes, yeah. you know, his teeth were bad and, and, you know, so people didn't know how to deal with Mo, but so, Golf was his refuge, and when he was hitting golf balls, uh, I have a sense it was kind of a, a, a spiritual experience for him. He was just so thoroughly in, in doing it that, that, you know, Mo used to talk that he was, that he became one with a golf ball, and he, you know, he kind of rode it out there, and, and he talked about it in ways I haven't heard other golfers talk about it. But I came to just understand this part of Mo about 20 years later. Um, and I wrote the second edition of the of the Mo Norman book uh, came out in 2017, and um, we added about 100 new pages of of text, uh, all these first person stories, uh, new pictures, new cover. So I'm really excited about that. But a key part of that, why I'm telling you that part, yeah. is that um, I connected with a couple of Mo's friends who I hadn't really gone deep with before, including a one of his best friends, Mike Martz, a golf professional in uh, Waterloo, Ontario. And we talked about how golf was a spiritual experience for Mo. And I just love that because instead of being chasing after results and, and winning trophies, and he certainly he did. I mean, um, I forget. You know what? I'm kind of gapping on how many tournaments they won. It was kind of like 
over 50 or something like that. Yeah, over 50, I believe that's what I have. Yeah, yeah, and it's 17 or 18 holes in ones. You know, the course records. I, I you know, I probably should have <laughs> looked. No, that, it's all right. I think he had. Up. If I remember right, from this is for me reading your work. Um, I think he had. I want to say 17 hole in ones, 15, or I'm sorry, 50 championships, and. Oh, I'm trying to remember the. I thought he was like 20 course records. It might be more than that. It's 25 or 30 course records. Yeah, like that. yeah. I mean, including Believe. including a 59. So, anyways, it was just like, and this I think is a key takeaway for golfers is that that if you're in the experience of playing golf and in and enjoying golf for its own sake and your friends and the in the environment, you give yourself a chance of playing some amazing golf. But if you're living so and dying with every result and shooting target scores, that's that's just a recipe for suffering and bad golf. I couldn't agree more. Let me ask you a question that I that I, I hear, and I'd like to hear your answer on this too. So um, he's widely considered, you know, one of the two men who own their swing. I think Tiger Woods was a good quote on that. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you be the greatest ball striker of all time without being the greatest player of all time? So these are for the people who maybe maybe today are just hearing about Mo Norman. He won 50 times. We'll get into his PGA Tour, time on the PGA Tour, how he got there. But how can you be the greatest ball striker of all time without being the greatest player of all time? So go into maybe touch on that, and then we can kind of get into his time. Maybe we roll into the PGA Tour and talk about sure. how that went, what happened. Okay. Well, um, a couple of things. One is that Mo was completely confident in his ball striking but he wasn't the most confident putter and he would just it was kind of like the mo lauren rubenstein who also wrote a book on mo called mo and me um said that a green was a public place was uncomfortable for a private person like mo and well kind of like kind of like george newts another canadian you know ball striking genius and ben hogan all three of them weren't the greatest putters but you know, they were just magicians with, with the club. Yeah. So that was part of it. You've got to be a great putter to, to win. I mean, Zinger was talking about that, you know, Sunday in the, uh, the U.S. Open. So that's one part of it. But Mo, you know, you don't shoot 59 without being a good putter. But he Dark wasn't right. able to call upon that all the time. But I think that Mo, mostly Mo was a very, um, very social guy. I mean, it, it, he had a reputation as a hermit. And if you didn't know him, you couldn't talk to him. Um, but Mo needed his friends. He was very, very loyal friend and he very social guy with those people he knew and trusted. Well, out on the tour, he was all by himself. Yeah. And you can only hit golf balls for so long. And, you know, Mo, it was a, it was a different era. And, you know, Mo wasn't a guy to go, Mo didn't drink alcohol and he, you know, he, he liked playing cards, but he wouldn't go hang with, with, uh, you know, Dow Finsterwald and, you know, all those guys. And so he was very lonely. And also he didn't have much money. Mo had money to some, sometimes, but he wouldn't spend it. He'd be, you know, he was, Mo grew up with, with not much. I mean, his family was kind of lower middle class, you know, typical families that grew up in the 30s and 40s. But Mo had a, what I call a scarcity shadow. And so he didn't spend any money. So, so he felt kind of like a piece of dirt and inferior to these, to these other players. And I just don't think that 
the PGA Tour was a place for Mo. And it's not a place for a lot of people. You have to be able to know how to manage yourself. You have to be able to be on your own for extremely long, like, uh, uh, long periods of time. You have to be able to – a friend of mine who played on um, the Canadian Asian Tour said – to, to survive as a tour player, you have to be able to take a $1,000 bill and light it on fire and just kind of laugh. And that certainly yeah. wasn't low. Wow. Because if, if you have an attachment to, to your finances and you're living and dying with every cut you make, you got no chance. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You've got to throw it all in there. You've got to give it every shot. You know, I find interesting about you saying that is that component, specifically in that time period of the PGA Tour really being um, in, in – we put it, had it in some words on our show, a closed shop. It was pretty much a good old boys club. You got and it. If you were an American and a tour player, you could get along fine. But if you were Mo Norman or we gave the story before of Bobby Locke uh, and how he was treated on tour by fellow PGA Tour players, even though he performed well and won majors, he was always pushed out as an outsider and finally gave up on the PGA Tour completely to go play in Europe. So it's not yeah. it's not out of the normal that uh, they were very protective. I would say the PGA Tour pros were very protective, perhaps of their own wallets. And if you didn't fit into the good old boys club, they kind of let you know it one way or the other. Hundred percent. And well, think yeah. of it too. So so there was Mo, um, a different cat, spoke very uh, like a a Gatling gun. You know, very quickly he repeated himself. And he was an odd guy, you know, even when he looked at you, his eyes would kind of roll around a bit and he was just a different dude. Well, back in the, you know, the late fifties and sixties, we, you know, as a society, we were not sure. exactly that welcoming to those who were different. And whereas I think that's a huge difference today. I think there's, there's a couple of players on the PGA tour. I won't name that, you know, they're, they're a bit eccentric and yeah. they, there's, and I think that people will kind of like say, give them a bit of a break on on some of the things that they might say and do because we're now accepting as a society of people who are who are a little bit more different, you know, of, of diversity. Well, Absolutely. that didn't happen. That didn't happen in you know the earlier years. And uh, particularly, you know, if you want to get into it now, we could talk about that story of how Mo, you know, left the tour. Yeah, but, love to hear uh, it, please. Okay, so. So Mo played on the. It was called the the U.S. Winter Tour. He won a um, he won a what was called a bursary tournament in Canada. That I think he basically he won. It was fifteen hundred bucks that allowed him to kind of go and bankroll himself playing on what was called the the Winter PGA Tour, which is played uh, down in Arizona and all that. Mm-hmm. And his most first year, he did okay. Um, I remember Bob Golby thought that Mo would break out sometime, and that's when Venturi said that Mo was pipeline Mo because he hit it down the sprinkler line all the time. <laughs> and then in his second year, um, I forget the tournament, but Mo was uh, Mo was right in the hunt. And then he showed up at his good friend Gus Maui's, and Gus said, Mo, how come you're not at the tournament? I think it was uh, Phoenix or Pensacola. One of those ones that starts with a P anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Mo said, I'm not going back. I'm never going back. And and what happened was, uh, as much as I could tell um, from the research, is that two players, one way of looking at it is they cornered him in a locker room. And they said, Mo, 
You got to stop fooling around. You can't hit the ball off high tees. No Coke bottle. You got to take a caddy. You got to dress better. And Mo, and, and this is one of the things too, is that why, you know, greatest ball striker who, who say ever lived, didn't yeah. make it as a tour player. Mo also had a deep inferiority complex. If he had the sense that you were at a higher station in life than him, he was completely intimidated. And so these fellows, and Mo felt, he felt humiliated. He felt dressed down. So he left. And so, and that was really it. And he retreated back to Canada. And there was no, um, all kinds of people tried to get Mo to go back. So they'd bankroll him. They'd spend time with him. He wouldn't go because he felt that he'd been basically uh, abused down there. Now, something that occurred to me later was maybe there's a different interpretation one could make. Maybe these two fellows were trying to help him. Sure. Yeah. Could have and maybe he just took it a different way because that would happen to Mo many times that Mo would misinterpret things and people were meaning to help him, but he'd take it one way and he might get really mad at them. He might, you know, let out a stream of profanities at them or something. So it, it's hard to know. Um, but that's, Something happened that was very um, uh, traumatic to Mo, and he never went back to the PJ Tour after that. Sad. I, you know, at the same, one of the things I, I find most fascinating about him is it's not about the outcome, it's about the execution, right? I mean, it's not so much about winning the tournament, it's about executing the perfect shot and just having that sole focus on hitting that straight, dead, perfect shot right down the middle or right at the flag. And that seems to be where he got most of his joy versus, you know, the average golfer getting a birdie or an eagle on a hole or sinking a 30-foot putt. Yeah, I, yeah. I've always found that fascinating that he's just so into the execution, the ability to hit that shot, that, that called shot, if you will. I'm going to hook it 20 yards, I'm going to slice it 20 yards, I'm going to hit it dead straight perfect at that flag. You know, it's a different mindset completely than, you know, me specifically when I'm on the tee box, I'm like, oh dear God, let's find one in the fairway and exactly. let's get one up, we might get a birdie and I need this putt to sink or I don't get par and, you know, uh, a totally different mindset. Get, maybe get into this. So, what your book, the first one, feel, the, the Feeling of Greatness, is that is that a a Mo term, or I mean, is that something he said, or how did you get to that that title? That's uh, that's very cool. Because it, um, it's going right back to that, right? It's feeling okay. that executing that shot. But yeah, how how did you come up with the title, and how does that relate to Mo? Um, okay, um, I had been so I'd been researching Mo, and I'd been, I would meet him for coffee and play golf with him and hang out for you know about six months or so and interviewing all kinds of people and it's getting down to the short strokes in terms of getting this book done and to the to the publisher but there's a bunch of things that uh i felt were left unresolved you know i i hadn't talked to mo about the car accident i was always afraid that if i spoke to him about it he might just cut me off sure you know and sure. a sensitive sensitive topic for sure and I didn't really feel that I had a, an ending for the book, and I didn't even have a title. And so 
it was interesting. To, so I, I flew down to SEMO uh, at Royal Oak uh, in Florida, and I spent a couple of days with him. And it was really interesting because a, a good friend of his, golf professional, uh, Craig Shankland, had arranged for Mo to give a presentation to the PGA of America Teaching Summit. And I think that happens, it still happens, but I think it was like every couple of years or something. And all the instructors from North America would gather for a few days and there'd be all these you know, presentations you know, the David Ledbetters of the world, uh, you know, all of this. And so all of those friends, including people like me, were really excited because at this time in the early 90s, there was the sense that Mo was not respected by that larger golf world and, and what a genius he was and how brilliant his golf swing was. So here finally was this opportunity for Mo to be in front of yeah. all these great professionals. There was one problem. Mo didn't want to do it. Oh, Mo was excruciatingly shy, and you know that's you know if we get deeper and deeper into why Mo not you know become a PGA Tour star, that's one of the things. It just it, excruciatingly shy, and Mo said said, "Ooh, if I could hit golf balls, I'd do it for sure. I can't talk in front of that many people." <laughs> and um, so it was really it was really kind of this odd thing. And so, anyways. Um, it was an evening, uh, and we're at Royal Oak, and we're sitting at a table in the dining room. I said, Mo, you know, what about the PJ of America thing? I mean, that sounds like a good opportunity. Well, he just shot me a look, and then he, he left the table, and he went out the door, and it was like, oh, my God, I have pissed him off royally. Oh, my God, I still have things I need to ask him. So I chased after him, and I got him in the parking lot, and I just said, Mo, 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 hang on, hang on. And I knew he was upset. And and I just kind of said, Mo, what do you what do you love about hitting a golf ball? And and he just said, I just love the 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 act of hitting hitting the ball, being there with the shot, riding along with it. And he said, I'm the only person who has the feeling of greatness. Oh. And it was like pow. <laughs> yeah. And we and he took out an old golf digest that he had, and there was a fold out of Pebble Beach, and he just he just looked at it and he went as if like, behold the beauty of this. And we talked about how we love both love the playing in the evening when the sun would slant into the grass, and you just get a lovely green color, and and how much joy he got from golf. But that when he drove away, I went the feeling of greatness. There we go. That's it. So good, right? And what a great story behind it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. It's almost like the title found you, Tim. <laughs> you didn't. Well no kidding. You didn't. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, isn't, isn't that the way life works, Jay? I mean, we chase after the We chase after this butterfly of happiness, and the harder we chase after it, the more we elude it. And sometimes we just got to wait for it to land on us. Mm -hmm. Beautifully put. I didn't realize you were a philosopher as well, Tom. Yeah, no Tim. Kidding. Tim, sorry, why don't I call you Tom? That's disgraceful. Um, hey, it's that one-syllable name, man. Would, <laughs> would, <laughs> would you call yourself, were you friends with Mo? Did Mo have friends? Was he capable of that oh, engagement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mo wa had very dear friends, most of whom were golf professionals, because they shared his passion for golf, the thing that really mattered to him. 
And uh, no, I was not a friend of Mo's. I was the guy who would just ask him lots of questions. That's intriguing, he trusted isn't it? me, yeah. and he was okay to spend time with me. But we just—I mean, we never. I never was able to get into kind of too much idle chit chat about about you know how the Mo was a huge sports fan. Um, so sometimes it was kind of awkward because unless I was asking him questions, we didn't talk much. There wasn't anything to talk about because he wouldn't engage with me. He wouldn't even, you know, I was, you know, I was an avid player, like you know, a lot of people involved in golf, and he'd never look at my golf swing, and, and, <laughs> and you know, ever. You know, even though I would, like, stand beside him and hit balls, you know, I've had the gall <laughs> yeah. to hit balls beside Mo, but um, he never said anything All, other than when we played, if I hit the ball fairly well, he'd go, ooh, solid, solid, even though it was sailing into the woods. <laughs> like, he was encouraging, but my sense was, I just made this up, I don't know, is that I hadn't given my life over to golf like uh-huh. he and his friends had. So there was, there was a divide. Uh-huh. But Mo was, Mo was a, a great friend to so many golf professionals, and, and that's why so many of them uh, made themselves available for this uh, upcoming documentary, because they wanted to share their love for Mo. And, uh, but just real quick, Mo would do things for people that were just off the charts. Uh, on the Canadian tour, when Mo was older and had a bit more money, um, a couple times he would, he overheard you know, some young guys saying, oh, you know, I can't afford to, you know, let's say they're playing in Winnipeg and, and you know, have to drive, say, 500 miles to Regina. You know, I don't know if it's 500 miles to Regina, whatever, the long drive. Right. right. And, oh, I can't afford the entry fee. And Mo would just throw, you know, a couple thousand bucks at the guy's feet and walk away. And oh, he wouldn't wow. expect it to be repaid. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. That's unbelievable. Let's tell some stories, Tim, some some Mo stories, because so many of them make you stop and just say, wow, and you don't know what to say next because it's just such unusual sort of behavior. But it was the combination of the the confronting behavior, because you don't see it very much, with the incredible skill, the almost unfathomable skill, the sort of skill that makes other tour pros stop and watch, because that doesn't happen often, does it? So you know that it's something special. So tell us some of your favorite stories about how those two came together. Sure. Well, Mo had uh, this is this is just more of a of a pattern of things rather than a specific story. But Mo had a ritual that during the Canadian Open, which was played uh, for a long time, was played at Glen Abbey Golf Club in Oakville, Ontario, just west of Toronto. And every Tuesday, Mo would show up just outside of the ropes at the range, and he'd just kind of hang out there and he'd be in his street shoes and. And inevitably, somebody on the range, a tour pro, would see Mo, and they invite him in. And say, hey, Mo, can you hit some balls for us? And Mo would go, oh, no, no, you don't want to see me. And, they could, you know, he'd feign this thing, right? And <laughs> no, I love it. We'd love to have you hit some balls. Come on, please. And they invite him over, and, and then he'd take a club from the bag, and, and almost like always the same thing. He'd take and go, Matchsticks, matchsticks. How do you hit a club so light? Mm. Because Mo played with very heavy clubs. Um, he had like ultra stiff shafts, and and so he would layer his clubs with um, with lead tape and all this stuff. So, anyways, and the pros would go, "Never mind, Mo, just hit him." So Mo would start hitting balls, and he would just paint the sky. 
you know, with all these different shots. He'd do what he did in his clinics. You know, he'd he'd hit balls. He goes, Ooh, you know, he hit the same spot. He'd hit us, you know, he'd call it and he hit a sign and, you know, all that stuff. And, and he would just dazzle them. And very soon the entire range would form a horseshoe around Mo. And so you're talking some of the best players in the world were dazzled by this kind of frumpy, strange guy who kept up this you know nonstop running commentary about what he was doing and all of this and laughing and just saying these, these you know his moisms too. Mo had uh, sayings about golf that were absolutely brilliant. And my favorite one is that he played golf with an alert attitude of indifference. Hmm. Oh, explain. Wisdom. Yeah. He had a lot of stuff. But anyways, that's that's just one of the... So he'd be going, ooh, there's your Sunday paper. Oh, pure as the driven snow. You know, all that <laughs> stuff. And and they'd be like, they their jaws would be on their shoe tops. They'd be laughing and amazed at the same time. And so this was a ritual that went on for years and years, and the pros loved it. Uh, Nick Price and, and uh, Peter Jacobson told me uh, that they were just dazzled by it. Because he, his swing itself, Tim, was a, a most unusual movie. Is anybody who's seen it, if you haven't seen it, come and have a look at it on YouTube. From the setup right to the action itself, it's a it's a very unorthodox looking golf swing compared to what we're used to. Do we know if anybody Absolutely. tried tried to copy any of those players, even secretly? Guys like Nick Price, them did they, did they try to take anything from it? Do you know? Because it's I know Todd Graves has got an entire sort of school of system set up to to help yep. people learn. Uh, that the, the unusual action that Mo had and the incredible results that he got. Do we know if any of those other guys were ever tempted? Well, Somebody like Faldo, you'd think, must have. Sandy toyed. Lyle did. Sa- mm-hmm. Sandy Lyle did. Did he for a while? Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he was giving. He got, Sandy kind of lost his game there for a while as he got older, and um, he tried it out for a bit. But I think what people would do, they'd take elements of Mo's swing and they would try it. But this, you see, the thing about tour pros is that, and, and the the really successful ones is they don't apply to a method because mm-hmm. there's no freedom in a method. They, they play according to their own natural ability, what feels good for them. That's why they be, that's why they're that good. Um, but they would take elements and, and see what Mo was doing. And one of the things that some people have done is they hold their hand up a little higher at a dress so that their arm and the, and the club are almost in a, in a straight line. Um, and if you look at, a player like uh, like Matt Kuchar, he swings more on a single plane. Uh, Steve Stricker, more on a single plane. But Bryce, 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 Bryce would be a great Shambo. example, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But they're not copying Mo. They're doing their own thing. They just happen to happen upon some things that there's some similarities. And uh, But Mo's swing, he developed completely on his own. And that's why I think it's so amazing that here's this guy with no instruction, developed for him this repeatable, efficient, powerful action that hit it dead solid every single freaking time. And it's all by intuition and feel. And his his just figuring out angles and things. So it, it it's absolutely brilliant when you think of it. Um, so Mo said what was different about Mo particularly is if you sort of looked at him behind from down the line you know, kind of mm-hmm. if you're standing behind him mm-hmm. and, and right. there's the ball and there's the target all in a straight line. If you, if you look at, if you see this on YouTube, get an angle like that, you'll see that most club, most arm and the club almost form a straight line. Most people, when you look at them, their hands 
hang below their shoulders, right? So there's more of an angle there. So what Mo would do, basically he set up so that his impact position and his address position were the same. So Hmm. he reduced the amount of moving parts. He talked about all the time. He had the simplest move in golf. And all these things that he would do, he said that it was to give him an advantage in terms of simplicity uh, so that he could hit the ball dead straight every time. And and did <laughs> somehow. Uh, and did. It feels like it's never really been fully explained to me. Nobody really understands exactly how he did it. Do they? Do you think they do? Do you think anyone does? Well, me and Todd wrote, uh, we co-authored a book on Mo's mm-hmm. swing. And so uh, we did our best in explaining <laughs> it. And, I, and, you know, people can can look at it and they can try and replicate parts of it. Um, and some people go all in. You see, um, it, this probably came up when you talked with Todd, is that um, Mo played, you know, until his death, uh, I think it was Mo was 74 when he passed away. Mo never had to take any time off from golf because of a bad back or anything like that. His, his, his swing put no stress on his back. And um, so... Obviously, some wisdom in, in what he did mm-hmm. did with his body and how he moved through a golf ball. So this is a great swing for older people uh, who are worried about injuring themselves or say they've got a bad back or something. You hearing that, Connor? Or, or people named Connor. Connor, yes. yeah, Connor. You hearing that, Connor? <laughs> he of the dodgy back and the two Connor. the two flat back swing That's that right. he doesn't like to see on the. Oh no! It oh. it it does fly straight. That's all I'm going to say. No, we'll, we'll it was a Mo back. Norman swing. If you look at that swing on on Twitter, folks, Mo Norman straight. I saw a lot of I things, Connor. I didn't see Mo Norman in that swing. I've got <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> my takeaway. From <laughs> Tim, we didn't get enough of the stories. Yeah, give us some examples of Mo's accuracy. I think they're the stories that really stun people. Yeah. The incredible shots that he could hit over and over and over and over and over again. Give us some examples of some of those. There's a, there's a lot of them in the book, and they're usually told by people clearly quite almost breathless in disbelief at what they've just witnessed. Well, I think it was uh, the story that uh, when Todd Grace first met Mo, um, Mo uh, was doing a clinic, and Mo uh, Todd had driven like eleven hours to see to see Mo play and, uh, at this clinic, and Mo got a wedge and a ball, and he tips it over, and he hits the ball, and there's a fifty-yard sign, and Mo hit it on the fly on the very first shot, and then he hit it again. And then he put one just kind of under it. And, but Mo would do this all the time. Uh, there was um, a, a, one of his good friends, Ken Venning, a golf professional uh, near Brampton, Ontario, kind of northwest of Toronto. And and uh, Ken put a, a shag bag. I mean, that's an old leather bag for those of you who, are, <laughs> who are slightly younger than me. There you um, go. Put our, he put out 100 yards. He says, Mo... He would uh, give uh, Mo uh, a dollar bill for every time he hit it, and at, finally, at about eighty-two, he said, "That's enough." <laughs> no wow! And Mo would start. I, I remember another a man was telling me about a clinic he ran. And Mo, you have Mo entertain his friends, and Mo says the clinic is the clinic begins, and he hit his first wedge shot. Of course, he hold it. You know, it just there's just so many stories like that. Mo's giving a clinic. At um, oh gosh, uh, it's a tr- it's a golf course in Toronto. Um, it was eighteen holes. It's now just nine um, off Young Street in Toronto. 
and there's a there's a hole where there's a hydro line that goes across. And Mo just basically out of twelve shots, Mo hit the hydro line. It was something like either eight or ten times. Wow, Incredible. these stories are just endless. And, and I, I I have a good one. I, and, and again, I don't even know if you know mine's more wives' tale or not. But I heard it. He was playing a practice round, and I believe I heard the story. It was Sam Sneed, and they were playing this hole. Sam Sneed, you know, lays up. Mo Norman pulls out driver, and Sam Sneed, you know, older age Sam Sneed, mind you, goes yeah. Mo. Nobody can hit over that 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 river, the creek, whatever it is. He's like, you got to lay up. And Mo's like, I don't need to lay up. And Sam's just looking at him like, you know, what an idiot. He knows he can't go over it. So Mo hits a line drive, and as the ball's in the air, he goes, you can go over it if you cross the bridge. And the ball hit the bridge and went over to the other side. I love that. I don't even know if it's true, but it's like awesome story. Exactly. Yeah, and one of the another great story is. so Mo was playing in Quebec, and Mo was was uh, leading a tournament, and it comes to the 18th hole, and he hits the green in two, and he comes up to the green and he says, "Has anyone else hit the green in two today?" And apparently, no, but no one had. But see, the strange thing is, is that when Mo hit the green in two, he said nobody clapped. He said, oh. I can't believe they didn't clap. They didn't clap. Yeah. Well, Mo, Mo four putted and lost the tournament. Oh. And all the Quebec media are there and everything, and, and like they're just kind of aghast. And they just thought this this crazy guy Mo, what the hell? He just threw away the tournament because he seemed more concerned why people didn't clap than what focused on his on sinking the ball. So the next day they're playing this course, uh, Richelieu Valley near Montreal, and I believe it, it was either another tournament or it was practice round Canadian Open or something, and they're playing this. Uh, par three near the clubhouse i think it was number 10 and so the so the media were kind of gathered there and they they came up to mo and so some of them were kind of making fun of him and and uh they're saying mo how's the putting today and mo hit his ball and he turned around and says i'm not putting today and of course he hit an ace didn't have to putt and, they, and these are stories you verified, aren't they, Tim? Because it, it's very easy Absolutely. to think they've been embellished, you know, but they're, they're really sort of quite true. It feels like Mo was really not that interested in the game, per se. I think Connor alluded to this earlier, the, the result, the score, 65 or 66. or the, It was the shots. That was the true beauty to him. It was the ability to hit the shots. Does that sound? Absolutely. But Mo also loved the competition. Mm-hmm. He would bet his fellow competitors and fans that he would, like, he would deliberately hit in a bunker – and he'd say, do you think I can I can get it up and down or knock it in the hole? And he'd bet people because hmm. he it, yeah. he had to keep himself interested. Yeah. So Mo would do things like, uh, it, like he would lose interest uh, sometimes. And so that's why he would start to do things like hit the hit the the ball off a Coke bottle. Uh-huh. And he also had tees of various lengths and, you know, two inches, four inches, six inches, eight, <laughs> ten. And in yeah. tournaments, he'd hit the balls off these. And, and so the fans would get all worked up. So he hits a two inch, and the next one's the four inch, and they get all excited, and they they get all you know all hyped up, and this is ways that Mo kept himself interested, but in competitions Mo was serious. He wanted he you know particularly as a younger man he mm-hmm. wanted to he wanted to win, and he was very proud of winning. He won a lot of prestigious events. Um, he, he won all of the Canadian uh, key events. He won the the Canadian Amateur twice in nineteen uh, I believe it was fifty five and fifty six, and at the time. Um, the the winner of the Canadian Open uh, received an exemption into the Masters, 
So Mo was very excited about that. And yeah, he, he played to win. Uh, but this was Mo when he was in his was in his 20s. Um, and he was very proud of his championships. He won the Canadian uh, PGA Championship, which had been won by people like uh, Arnold Palmer and um, I think Sneed. But so he wanted to win uh, win events, but sometimes he would just you just kind of get bored to keep himself interested. You, you mentioned betting there. Was it in your book that I read that he and George Newton used to play a game where they would bet certain amounts of money on who hit the pin the most times in a practice round? They'd aim at the flags yeah. and see who could hit the flags from the fairways yeah, and the tees. Yeah, it didn't have anything to do with who would shoot the lowest score because they weren't in, interested in putting. But when they were playing together, they would just be – and this is when they're older. You know, This isn't when they were competing um, for spots on the on the to win a bursary, that type of thing. They were fierce competitors back then. But when they were older, they just both knew – they were in the presence of, of someone who was – in the same stratosphere as them in terms of its ability to hit the golf ball. So yeah, your story is, uh, is true as far as I can, uh, as I could ascertain. Well, imagine that, Connor. I actually, Rod, I actually, I have a firsthand story of him playing for flags. I can't remember the gentleman's name. I played with him. He's a hickory player from Canada. Um, he played in a national hickory championship. So this is like over 10 years ago, but I remember the story so vividly because I remember thinking, who is this, Mo Norman guy. I mean, it was a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. And he said he was playing a member of this club, and instead of playing for holes, he was playing to hit flags. And the member bet him $100 for every flag he hit. And at the end of the round, he had $1,200. So that's 12 <laughs> flags, 12 of 18. So wow. I asked the, you know, the, the guy who was caddying for him, like, you know, what you know, what he shoot? He goes, 12 flags. <laughs> he just looked at me like, what are you, an idiot? He, he shot 12 flags. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's all he was doing. He was hitting the flag, <laughs> just, and then he just walk off the green, take the 100 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible stuff. Tell me, Tim, was Mo happy, do you think? Was he a happy person? It's hard to gauge from everything you read about Mo. Do you think he was a happy person? I think that Mo had eyelets, if you will, of, of happiness, uh, particularly when he was with his friends. Um, I, I saw Mo sometimes, uh, he'd just be sheer delight in talking with his friends and fooling around and, and the stories they would tell, uh, about Mo. And, and so, it, you know, how do you define happiness? What, what mm, is that? You know, true. is it a sense of peace? Is it, um, freedom from a certain amount of anxiety? What is it? And, but I have a sense that, but Mo, when he hit a golf ball and a lot of time, and when he was with his friends, he felt free, he felt at peace and connection. And because Mo, Mo lived by himself, he didn't, you know, I don't know that he ever went on, you know, a date ever in his life. Um, but he, when he had connection with his friends, he, you could just tell how much joy he, he got from that. But I think in many ways, Mo's life was very bittersweet. Hmm. He had the sense that he didn't belong and that off the golf course, well, off the golf course, I experienced Mo as this bundle of, of, of anxiety. I mean, if you didn't know who, if, if Mo didn't know you and you walked up and said, hey, Mo, remember we played at the Corther or something like that, he would he would basically snub you. And if you tried to say, hey, Mo, I mean, we had a good time, he would basically 
um, make you go away, maybe with some like unbelievable, you know, obscenities. I mean, it was just crazy how he, how he would act. So I think despite, you know, getting um, recognition later in his life, getting financial security with the, um, the $5,000 a month uh, Titleist um, yeah. thing that Wally Uline, um which I think is one of the one of the great. I, I do too. Ex- expand on that, Tim, yeah. because uh, you know, I've been a critic of Titleist and Wally over the years. But my goodness, what a gesture he made there! Tell yeah. people what, exactly what happened with that. Okay, I gotta, gotta remember the story. Um, okay, so in the nineties, uh, people like me were writing stories. I wrote a profile of Mo in uh, Golf Magazine. Um, the fun, the Wall Street Journal did a story on Mo, and the common element was here was this guy who had this otherworldly brilliance at hitting a golf ball, but he lived hand to mouth. And so Wally decided that he was going to write what he thought was a wrong. And so what uh, Wally asked to meet Mo at the PGA show, I believe it was January 1995. And Mo said, why does Wally Ewing want to meet me? Why? He was all nervous about it. And so Mo went with uh, two of uh, two, two fellows he trusted, and he goes into the Titleist booth, and Wally gives him uh, an envelope. And Mo opens it up, and it's a check for $5,000 and a letter. Um, now, that part I might have a little bit wrong, but it, at least it's a letter for sure. But it was yeah. a... It was Wally saying that they were going to pay Mo $5,000 a month for the rest of his life. And it was, and when I talked to Wally about it, he said it was kind of like a payback. It was kind of like, you know, thank you for playing Titleist balls, wearing foot joy shows, shoes and the visor. And it was Wally's way of just, he just didn't want Mo to, um, you know, wither away a forgotten, you know, old man. He'd seen that happen to many people, and just thought, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna take care of this. And and I I thought the world of Wally for that because there was no official press release. There was no they didn't yeah. didn't do anything to try and take advantage of that at all. It just happened, and those who became aware of it spread the word. Um, so I think it was just a, a great act of benevolence. And the only um, condition that Wally put on it was that they would be able to film Mo, uh, spend a day watching Mo hit golf balls. And um, so there's that, that film's out there, but I've seen parts of it, and unfortunately it's got this very um, annoying and uh, distracting timestamp on it. So oh. somehow we got to figure out a way to get rid of that. that out. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I guess my question would be this. Um, I look at you know his ability to hit the ball, and I and I I immediately go to thinking of uh, Ted Williams, the baseball player, Boston Red Sox. Yeah, and he always said it was you know he always said when when I leave the game, I want to be able to walk down the street and have somebody point and say, "See that guy right there? That's the greatest hitter there ever lived." Did do you think first of all did Mo have that? Did he did he seek that? I mean, he, he knew he was the greatest hitter, you know, uh, of all time, the greatest ball striker of all time. Um, but did he need that from the public or that recognition? And then did he really receive it in his lifetime? It, your thoughts, really. 
Well, I think Mo did want it. I think he did want that validation from his from his peers and particularly from from instructors that he had a a, a different way and what he thought was a a better way to hit a golf ball. And I don't, you know, maybe that was partly from the inferiority complex. Uh, sure. Maybe he maybe he needed that to feel, you know, more validated and, and just to kind of just put aside a lot of his anxieties. But at the end of the day, Mo did get that recognition. I mean, people like I interviewed people like Dave, uh, David Ledbetter, um, all kinds of uh, Jim Suddy, um, yeah. all kinds of big names. And, and they all thought that Mo had for him, it was a, an efficient powerful swing um they where they differed was they didn't know whether that was something that the average person could could really use and i think todd graves has proved that it can but yeah. a lot but anyways i think and, and you know what's interesting to me is that once mo got that recognition i think like a lot of people he found that oh um my life is not transformed i'm not suddenly happy yeah. i've got yeah. it but it's kind of like the um, oh, a new phrase I learned the other day. It's called arrival fallacy. Kind of thinking that once oh, I get this I like project that. done, once I get the the promotion, I'll be happy. Ooh, and um, a lot. And it it never that never happens. Yeah. So it's more kind of so. I think Mo discovered that because despite having all his financial needs met, you know, at the age of sixty five and. And, and there's like an apparel company to put most stuff out. I mean, there's like Mo Norman products, and he's on the Golf Channel with Craig Shankland and uh, Peter. Oh, that, the name escapes me right now. One of the early guys on the Golf Channel. Um, Kessler. All this recognition. Kessler, he's on the cover of. That's it, Peter Kessler. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there you go, Peter. Of, oh, By the way, there you go, Peter. You were just on. The show. <laughs> you did go to. You had that show. He was just asking to be on this specific episode. And I said, Peter, we're going to have you on the show all by yourself because you're that big of a celebrity. And he just made the show. There you go, Peter. You're on. Well, glad to make Peter Kessler happy. There you go. But um, And Mo was on the cover of Golf Digest. I believe it was January 1995. And no, only Ben Hogan had more pages devoted to him than Mo. And so did all this attention and validation and respect make Mo happy, as you asked earlier? Yeah. I don't really think so. Yeah. He's still, it's just like anything else. You know, you might win the U.S. Open, but the next day you wake up and you still got the same issues. Yeah. Still got the same stuff going on in your life. But you got 2.2 million in the bank to help deal with What made him happy, what made him happy was hitting that next shot, Mm. right? That's where he found tranquility, it sounds like. I think that that's, yeah, after uh, you know, thinking about Mo for a few decades, and I think that's that was Mo's true, like quote, happy place. Yeah. That's yeah. where he felt equanimity. Uh, at you know, just life was good. That sense of flow, uh, peace. Um, that that he was not in danger. No one could hurt him, and, and that that was just this place. And I, I actually think that for Mo, it was a spiritual experience, and that. Um, that he believed in, you know, God, and that this was his way of communicating with God sure. and and His gift, and he was trying to make. But Mo never talked about this stuff. He never. But, t- you know, you're only supposing, I suppose, only speculating, aren't you? I suppose in that case. Well, no. His his friend Mike Martz thinks that that Mo, Mike Martz, uh, they did 
he traveled with Mo for years and years, and they did this clinic called Long and Straight. And um, and so Mike Mike's a very spiritual guy himself. And in terms of, we talk in terms of he's coach. I coach the University of Guelph golf team. Uh, and he coaches the University of Waterloo team. So we've got to spend a lot of time together. And we talk about how golf, um, when you look at performance, really it's just drawing on Eastern, not just, but drawing on Eastern philosophies and things like meditation and awareness. And um, so I, when Mike talks about this, I really view him as a super credible uh, witness. Uh, and it, plus the fact he's one of Mo's best friends. So Mo, Mo phoned him on the night that Mo, Mo, was, uh, Mo died of congenital heart failure. Just over a number of years, he just started, he was withering away. And he phoned Mike and he says, hey, pal, I think this is it. And um, he went to the hospital that night and he did die. And so that speaks, that tells you how close Mike was to Mo. Hmm. I think I might have misheard you. I thought you said Mo didn't talk about this stuff. You were saying he did talk about it to with Mike Martin. Right, okay, sorry, yes, yeah, I, I completely had the wrong end of the, uh, sorry. the, the stick there. Well, I, I only have two more questions, and Far then, Rod, away. if you have more, but uh, the first one is, uh, what what can we learn from Mo Norman? What can we, as golfers, as perhaps just people, I have we have people, oddly enough, that listen to the podcast, thank you for listening, by the way, who don't even play golf. So w- what's the takeaway for the average golfer and the average person out there, what can we take away? What can we learn from Mo? Well, as a golfer first, I'll speak to, to draw on your own gifts. You have, as a consequence of being a human being, you are absolutely brilliant. You have a, and you have a golf swing within you. You're, what you can do is it's drawing that swing out of you, using your own natural abilities relating to target all those gifts that we have, that ability to throw a ball at a, at a moving target, you can do that with your golf swing. If you pay attention to what your body's doing and you experience yourself as you're doing it, uh, that means hitting balls. That means really feeling what's going on. I mean, you can put the ball on a tee when you're trying to learn something. Swing slow, things like that. So that would be my key thing is that don't fill your head up with concepts and, and models and have to do it a certain way. You just handcuff yourself. So as a golfer, I think that's what you, that's what you could do is just be a really aware of your experience in swinging a golf club and relating to a target. Mo made golf into a, a reaction game. So that's as a golfer. As a, as a yeah. person, I would say... Listen to your beliefs and what's really true for you. And Mo believed he was the best ball striker that ever lived. There was no question about that. And he was very firm in that. There was no equivocation. Now, Mo also had beliefs that didn't serve him. And so be careful about what you believe and the stories you tell yourself. And always a, always a, a good thing to ask yourself is, what's the story I'm telling myself? And to really look at how true that story may be. Oh, really Mo was the like Mo was the ultimate underdog, really. I mean, you, I mean, we—that's one of the reasons why Mo's story is so resonant. You know, we watch movies and and plays and things about you know the the underdog who who perseveres despite all the odds against him. And I would have to say that although Mo never became a star, you know, on the PGA Tour or anything like that, 
he lived a, a, a pretty good life. He never worked a, a day in his life other than when he was a kid at a bowling alley. He got to do what he loved to do. He had a loyal group of friends. Um, that sounds like a pretty good life to me. Hmm. I totally agree. Yeah, me, I'll ask that? you my other question, and then maybe we can get into the, the documentary a little bit, but uh, maybe a tougher question. Will there ever be another Mo Norman? Well, I think it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, Mo is such an eccentric. What made Mo Mo was his the way his brain worked and how he was just just such a different cat um you know in terms of someone who who's able to trap their swing like that prop i don't know you know but was ben hogan i mean uh it's it's interesting i talked to ken venturi who played as much golf as anybody with ben hogan i said who's the better ball striker he said well hogan was a static shot maker he just hit that little fade out time after time like a machine. Yeah. He said Mo could do whatever he wants with a golf ball. So, so he said Mo was the better ball striker. Um, so I don't know. See, the thing, it's hard to know. There's probably other people who are in the world who, who may be able to hit the ball as well as Mo, uh, yeah. but for different reasons, they just can't stand the spotlight uh, or they're just in a, in a place where you know, maybe golf isn't, valued or something it's it's hard to know yeah unbelievable yeah interesting right now we better be quick here connor we do need to ask some questions yeah. about the upcoming documentary because tim's got to go let's shortly, jump so. into that yeah let's Get. jump into that rod why don't you go ahead well i suppose the very basic question tim there there is a film or a documentary in the works about mo it makes complete sense when you know the story it's there's definitely moving tell us a little bit about that uh, and what we can expect to see from it when we might be able to expect to see it uh, out and where people might be able to see it yeah, the um, so it's called the Finland Greatness, and the the movie idea started with Todd Graves, who we've talked about a few times. And Mo uh, Mo actually, there was a couple of fiction movies that were written for Mo, a couple of screenplays, including one by Barry Morrow. And Barry wrote the screenplay and won an Academy Award for The Rain Man. And uh, but unfortunately, Warner Brothers let let it lapse and and barry couldn't get it financed and todd said finally okay if we can't get a fiction kind of biopic done let's do a documentary so todd put a company together and started a fundraise and and with with help you know i helped arrange a lot of the interviews and uh barry jumped on board uh, I think he's the executive producer. I may have the title wrong, uh, wrong but uh, Barry is a key guy in terms of he did a lot of the interviews and and setting up basically the arc of the story. And um, so this movie has been in the works for a couple of years. Uh, they've interviewed uh, pretty well everyone who who know who knew Mo really well, all his friends, golf professionals. Um, and they're trying to nail down people like Lee Trevino and Paul Azinger, just kind of your A-listers in the last bit. But the movie is coming to, to a close, and they're hoping that it may screen. Um, there's a chance it could be this fall, but I think that's a little premature. But it's going to be a documentary, and it's going to, um, you know, I don't know exactly where it's going to show up. Certainly probably on the Golf Channel uh, and maybe limited release in, in different places. But in today's world, um, you know, I don't understand that world of film distribution. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you, you know, if you if you want to see it, you'll have a chance to for sure. 
Very exciting. It is exciting, and it's, uh, it's important, actually, and it's, it's great that it's been done. Your book's a fantastic um, sort of legacy of Mo's, and uh, uh, the film is only the right and obvious next step, so I would urge people to buy your book. In fact, I must upgrade and have get the second edition of the book. I didn't realise there was a second one until you mentioned it, or until I went looking earlier today, so anybody who's read the first one like me will no doubt be keen to read the second one. Tim, as always with these things, I feel like we barely touched the surface. I reckon we could go for another couple of hours, but we won't. We better, we better pull the pin now, but I don't think this is the last time we'll uh, we'll have you on the show. So it's just important that we say thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a real joy and a real pleasure to get to to know a bit more about Mo from somebody who was close to him in a way that not many people did get to. So thanks for thanks for doing that for us today. Yeah, let me just echo that too, Tim. Um, yeah, well, I was oh, just you're very say, welcome, and thanks 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 for the interest. You know, Tim, um, you're one of these important people in the, the game of golf, the people who help shine the light on these stories, had it not been for the, the, you know, the stories you wrote on Mo Norman and the interest that your father put in you uh, of the great you know, and mythical Mo Norman, I fear a lot of people wouldn't even really know who he is today. So I, I personally want to thank you for having an interest in Mo Norman and his history and sharing it with everybody. Because I, I fear that had you not... Many of us, including myself, wouldn't even know who Mona Norman is today, and I think we'd be worse off for it. So thank you. Oh, I'll, I'll take that in. I just thank you very, very much. Um, yeah, it was. I was um, blessed to have, obviously, my father in my life as a as a golfer and a father, and, and to share that story. And uh, you know, in a community of golfers, particularly, I was a, a golf writer for a number of years. And we were. It just seemed that at a certain point, everyone just came to came to the realization that people like Bob Weeks of, uh, of Score Golf Magazine, Lauren Rubinstein. I mean, a Hall of Fame golf writer. And we all yeah. seemed to come to the to the um, realization that, gosh, Mo's not in the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. Mo doesn't get the recognition he deserves. So we started to to write stories. And so, you know, Lauren ended up writing a book. I wrote a book. So. You know, a whole bunch of people came together to make, and, and Todd Graves is doing that now today with that movie. Yeah. So, um, all kinds of Mo's uh, friends and fans, you know, came together, and uh, yeah, it's just great to to share that story because I think Mo has uh, so many gifts uh, for us in terms of his life, uh, just entertaining. But but I think also there's some uh, Mo had a lot of wisdom and some some unique parts of his character that I think that we can all kind of uh, glom on to and uh, learn from. Yep, indeed. And he shows what's possible, doesn't he? The, the impossible 100%. is possible because what he did was impossible True. and yet he did it day after day, shot after shot. Thank you, Tim. Fantastic to chat to you. Really appreciate you taking the time. Look forward to chatting again soon. You're welcome. Take care, guys. Yeah, we will. That's it for episode 13 of Talking Golf History. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We will, of course, be back to do it all again soon with... Remind me, Connor, we've got the Open coming up. Have we got some special guests? We do. Uh, we have Dr. Tony Parker coming mm-hmm. on board, and we have a couple other special guests in line, not to mention, if it ever happens, I'll write another uh, <laughs> narrative podcast, like, uh, Golf from the Fringe. It's in the works, folks. I ha- can't tell you how hard this one is to tell. Uh, it's a very complex story, but I'm putting it to pen right now. Well, we, uh, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure the listeners are too. But looking forward to chatting more golf with you in the not too distant future. Thanks for taking some time today. Thank you.